I am thrilled with today's guest. I've been a big fan reading him and listening to him for years. David Brooks, uh, famous columnist for the last 20 or some odd years in the New York Times, The Atlantic. Uh, you see him on Meet the Press. Uh, you see him on PBS NewsHour. He's got his seventh book out. I think I got that right, seven books. Stuyvesant Town's own <laughs> David Brooks. His new book is How to, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And boy, could we use this right now, my friend. Thank you. I'm, and I am Stuyvesant Town's own. And Stuyvesant Town is uh, sort of a project, housing project on 14th Street and 2nd Avenue. And if you start there you uh, and walk a half mile south, you pass where my great-grandfather butcher shop, where I and my grandfather at a law firm, where both of my parents grew up, where I grew up, where my son went to college. And the only foray we took out of Lower Manhattan was to go to Queens, where I think you're from. That's that's where I'm from. I'm Queens. I I didn't leave Queens. I didn't wasn't on an airplane until I was 19, so I, I was not a very visionary Queens guy. <laughs> I was kind of strictly pavement, as Woody Allen would say. Um, I was really. Uh, I want to start. I was really moved yesterday watching you on Morning Joe. First of all, I think they gave you a half hour. I mean that that was like the the ultimate. That was the equivalent of like Johnny Carson calling you over to the couch. I mean, to give you that much time, they they knew they had something special there. Well, I appreciated it. I had to be at the studio at 6.40 a.m., and I slept through my alarm, so I woke up at 6.13. So there was a guy freshly showered sprinting down 6th Avenue yesterday morning at about 6.35. I want to start out, uh, I was very moved when you were talking about uh, how your son's uh, battalion or, or group or, or uh, his his army buddies, this was the ones that were hit and there were so many missing and so many dead was his group. And you were just reading names and just one after the other. And I could just feel the chills coming from you. Yeah. I mean, it was infuriating. He was in, uh, he was an Americans and anybody from around the world can go serve in the Israeli military if they, if they want to. And so he volunteered and he was put in a unit called Galani. And then his little unit was 13 under there, uh, his battalion. And uh, that day on uh, that Saturday, and he was based, along the fence in, outside Gaza and all the bases that got taken over by Hamas uh, last Saturday. And so I just looked at that list of, of the dead and they listed what unit we were from. And it was just again and again, Golani, Golani, Golani. And it was just sober and frankly sobering because uh, God's God willing, my son is home now, but um, it could have been very ugly. And it, it was very ugly for a lot of families um, that day and infuriating because the Israelis built that Gaza fence making the exact same mistake America has made several times, which is, think, which is to think that technology can replace human beings. And so that yeah. fence was largely technological and the, the lookout posts, the machine gun turrets, it was all remote control. And it, Hamas easily shot out the communication systems for the, all those remote control uh, lookouts and they were helpless, they were useless. And so they just bulldo bulldozed right through, it was a travesty. Your book, we're going to talk a lot about, obviously, what's going on in Israel, and, and, and your book has has almost an eerie time, timeliness to it in that same way in the Trump era, it's been so difficult to talk to people on the other side of the divide. When you talk to people now and people who can't necessarily distinguish between the innocent Palestinians and Hamas and all of the intricacies that we know are there, you find yourself in very difficult discussions with people these days. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's a brutal time. Uh, it's been brutal in America for a while, and it's always brutal when the Middle East is uppermost in our minds. And in my view, it's not woo-woo and naive to try to be humanistic. And to me, dehumanization is anything that covers over another person's face that makes somebody feel invisible, unseen, unheard. And there's nothing more cruel than to neglect somebody, to pretend they, they don't exist. Uh, and there's nothing more humane 
and the ability to make people see, feel seen, heard, and understood, and to actually understand what they're going through, to see the world a bit from their point of view. And so the book, I just try to walk people through the process. How do you get really good at seeing another human being and making them feel seen, heard, and understood? And the basic premise of the book is in any group of people, there are two kinds of people. There's diminishers and illuminators. And diminishers make people feel small. They stereotype, they ignore, they don't ask questions. And then illuminators make you feel visible. They light you up because they kind of get you. And they say things showing that, you know, they're inside your head a little, getting your point of view. And I tell you, I spent these last years asking people to tell me about times they felt seen. And with glowing eyes, they would describe these moments uh, when somebody just totally got them. And some of them are dramatic, but some of them are very mundane. There was a, I ran into a woman who told me that when she was 13, she had alcohol for the first time and got super drunk. And her friends left her on her front porch of her house. Uh, and she lay there so drunk she couldn't move. Her big, stern dad comes into the doorframe, and she's on the porch there, and she thinks he's going to scream at her all the things she's thinking in her head, which is, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. But he doesn't. He just picks her up gently, pulls her inside, brings her inside, lays her on the couch, and says, there'll be no punishment here. You've just had an experience. And at that moment, that dad understood he did not need to scream the things she was already thinking. He understood what she was thinking, and he was gracious. And she remembered it for the rest of her life. And it was not like something dramatic episode. It was just those everyday acts of consideration that can change a life. I was struck how many things in the book are applicable. I come from a world of sales. I was in the advertising business. And it always starts with listening. You talk about loud listening. And so many of the things, techniques you talk about and anecdotes you talk about have to do with being a listener and have to do with coming from the other person's point of view first. That's what really good selling is. And not to, I don't want to in any way call this a book about selling or whatnot, but it's really selling yourself as a human and buying other people as humans. Yeah, well, there are so many professions where you have to understand other people. Like if you're going to teach them, you have to understand them. Um, One of my, another little story, a friend of mine told me his daughter, his daughter was having trouble in second grade. And the teacher one day said to her, you know, you're really good at thinking before you speak. And that little moment took what she thought was her weakness, which was social awkwardness, and said, no, this is your strength. And suddenly she felt seen. And advertising, Lord knows, is the same. And so I just happened to be scrolling through what's left of Twitter. And I happened to see the famous video, which I'm sure you've seen a lot, um, it, which is Steve App or Steve Jobs talking about Apple before the release of the, the creative ones, the wild ones that ad campaign. And he points out that Nike has this great brand. They don't talk about their air soles and Apple doesn't talk about its keyboards or whatever. It's, it celebrates a certain sort of person. It says, this is the kind of person we're honoring. And so they, they understand what our aspirations are. I'm sure you know this a thousand times better than me. I aspire to be a certain sort of person. And if a brand can get inside my soul and tell me what I'm aspiring to is something they offer, well, I'm going to have a warm and fuzzy feeling about that brand. And that's what Steve Jobs achieved. But it, it, it like so many professions, nursing, doctors, you got to understand the people around you. And, and that, takes, that takes some skills. You talk about when instead of saying to somebody, well, you believe this, you, go, you kind of start with, well, how did you get there? How did you get to that belief? And yeah. that opens up a lot of doors. Yeah, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is get people to tell me stories. 
And so there's two modes of psychology, the paradigmatic mode, which is what most of us do in the white collar world. We're making an argument for something, a legal brief, a PowerPoint presentation, a newspaper column. It's an argument for something and that's perfectly fine, but it's not good for understanding people. It's a mode of communication where you don't really reveal much about yourself. But I wanna be in the narrative mode. I wanna be, I want you to tell me a story. And so I ask people, how'd you come to believe this? And that gets them to tell me a story about somebody, some experience they had or somebody, person who gave them their values. And I'm learning a lot more. One of my favorite little stories in the book is, is related to branding. Actually, it's, I got it from a book called You're Not Listening to Me by Kate Murphy. Uh, and she describes a focus group and she'd been hired, the focus group had, the moderator had been hired to figure out why people go to the grocery store late at night. And she could have just asked, why, why do you go to the grocery store late at night? Instead, she asked for a story. Tell me, t- tell me about the last time you went to the grocery store after 11 p.m. And one woman in the focus group who hadn't spoken up said, well, I'd smoked a joint and I wanted a menage a trois with me, Ben and Jerry. And so that's a story. <laughs> <laughs> and so she told a little story. And you got to know a little peek into her life. How do you, you know, we, I've had so many discussions in the last few years, as we all have. I'm a, I'm a very well-known Democrat with uh, Trumpers. And the way I approach it, instead of what, tendency today, sometimes everybody, we always want to invalidate the other person. I first validate them yeah. and say, I get why you voted for Trump the first time. You know, give him a checkbox. I also give him an out. I go, you know, and I have issues with Biden also. And then I go, but how can you now after January 6th, like somehow give them a pin, give them a validation instead of invalidating them. And I'm, yeah. hopefully I'm, I'm using some of the tools in the book. Yeah, well, I certainly have used a lot of the tools and I've tried to use them in my conversation with Trump supporters. I found when anybody's critiquing me, like I'm seen as New York Times, part of the establishment, uh, and that's fair. Um, and when somebody's critiquing me, whether from the left or the right, often there's implied um, criticism of me. I'm implicit in systems they regard as corrupt. And so I figure my first job, my tenants, my temptation is to want to get all defensive and say, oh, it's not me. I'm one of the good guys. You should understand this. But I realized my first responsibility is to stand in their standpoint and is to ask them three times in three different ways, tell me about what you're thinking. What am I missing here? Help me, help me understand. And so if I stand in their standpoint, I may not come to agree with them. But that third question reveals new things. And at least I'm showing them respect. Uh, and there's a great book called Crucial Conversations. And the authors of that book write, in any conversation, respect is like air. It's uh, if when it's present, nobody notice when it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. So if I ask them a bunch of questions, I really want to understand where you're coming from. Then I'm not judging yet, but I am showing some degree of respect and that turns down the temperature on everybody. Speaking of temperature and unfortunate temperatures, you've talked about two epidemics in this country, sadness and, and uh, meanness. And I see them all around and talk to me about that. Yeah, I'd be curious to know how it shows up in your life, but some of it is just statistics. Like depression is rising, mental health rising. 54% of Americans say that no one knows them well. The number of people with no close personal friends is up by four times in 20 fourfold. years. Fourfold. Yeah, yeah. That, that, out of all the stats I read that you, you're you going to talk about, that one just really hit me in the gut. Yeah. That one really and did. So we've just got this epidemic of, as you say, sadness and meanness. And it showed up in my life. I had a, a close friend who, took it, who felt victim to suicide uh, I was in Oklahoma giving a talk, and it's one of those talks where they 
the index cards come, the questions come on index cards after the talk. And I'm scrolling through the cards and they're normal political questions. And then suddenly a question comes up. Um, what do you do if you no longer want to be alive? And I just didn't know what to say. And I, I'm sort of ashamed of myself. I just skipped over it because I didn't know what to say and I didn't know the person. Uh, but I mentioned that to, I went to dinner that night at my house and one of our guests had said, well, my brother took his life three months ago. And then I mentioned to my friend group who we have a zoom call every week and like half the people on the call had some brush. Knew someone. Right? Yeah. Knew someone. So it's just, it's everywhere. Uh, and part of my hopes of the book is people will use the very practical concrete tips I fill the book with, uh, to make other people feel known. So they won't be feel so alone and, and sad. And when they feel alone and sad, they're going to be mean because sadness and aloneness leads to meanness. Cause if you feel nobody is seeing you, recognizing you, you feel it as an injustice and you want to lash out and you do. I'm raising two teenage daughters right now. And, and to say that social media is a big factor in this with, with depression and sadness with young people is an understatement. They are constantly seeing what they're not at. They're seeing everybody else's yeah. curated, idealized life. And it's, I don't want to conveniently blame social media because there's so many other things, but that is an accelerator for both of those epidemics. Yeah, I agree with it. I mean, if you look at the, especially the teenage statistics, 2013 is when it really gets bad and that's the smartphone that's when the smartphone yeah. came out i think also helicopter parenting hasn't helped because kids aren't as resilient as they used to be because they're overprotective uh so that's another one and ai frankly i'm more positive about ai than a lot of people but it's not going to improve our social skills it's not that's not one thing no. it's not going to do it's going to make them even worse Let's jump a little bit into current events. And are you surprised at what's going? I'm a University of Penn graduate, mm -hmm. and uh, it's been well documented what's going on there, as with Harvard, as with yeah, just about every other elite institution. This inability for the leaders to just come out and out and out condemn the barbarism of Hamas. Hamas has one. We all know has one mission statement to annihilate Jews, not just in Israel, all over the world. Uh, we don't have to recount the acts of barbarism that we've been all watching every day and, and talking about. But their inability to say that there are two truths at once, that I can still empathize deeply with the plight of the Palestinians, but absolute condemn the barbaric, barbaric acts of Hamas. And what, as somebody who has written, as somebody who is an intellect, try and, try and give, give me a handle on that. Yeah, I would say the university administrators have allowed a distorting ideology to take over large parts of the university. And that distorting ideology says that everything, every conflict in the world can be seen through the prison of, of race, can be seen through the prism of oppressor and oppressed groups, can be seen by the prison through colonized and colonizer. And so if you're sitting in at 10 in Philly or at Harvard in Cambridge or where I went to school in Chicago, you don't have to study the Middle East. You don't have to learn anything about the particularities of that circumstance. All you got to know is who's the colonizer and who's the colonized. And the colonizer is evil. And you have no room in your head for the suffering of those people who you do decide are evil, which in this case are the Israelis. Uh, and the oppressed, the colonized, are virtuous. And so anything they do is a legitimate act of just rebellion. And so you get, it's just not an accurate depiction ignorance. of the Middle East. It's ignorance. It's ignorance. Like it's it ignorance. may be accurate for South Africa. It may be accurate for parts of American racial yeah. justice, but you can just, just take the American situation and impose it on everybody else. 
Uh, and you wind up with these horrific first blind spots because you can't see any negative action that your alleged victim, the oppressed, do. Uh, uh, and then you wind up in a spot where super lefty people are embracing Hamas, which is a theocratic, super conservative, ultra conservative group that, you know, uh, represses gender equality, represses sexual minorities. Yeah, I, I love the LGBT community coming out for Hamas. Yeah. I, you know, why don't you go put, hold some of those signs over there and see, yeah. how, see how that works for you? Yeah, so it, it's just like it, it's our universities are not teaching students how to understand the world, how to perceive the world accurately. They're, so it, it's all through this distorting lens. Speaking of distortion, um, you, like I, have publicly called Trump a sociopath or, or like him, likened him to a sociopath. You look up sociopath in the dictionary, and it's every one of those traits. It's like they're just painting a picture of him. Explain to me as best as you can why after everything now, not on the come, not, you know, oh, he's better than Hillary or he's an outsider, but now after witnessing what we've witnessed for the last eight years, seven or eight years, how 40% of the country still puts thumbs up. Try and handicap yeah. that for me. I, that's the one question I, I can't get. My, I, I understand 20%. I understand, but I, I when you're starting to get to almost half of the country, please explain that to me as best as you can. Yeah, well, I've wrestled with this question for since 2015 or 2016. And I can't say I have a great answer. Um, I, by the way, think it's now more likely than not Trump will get reelected. So I'm, I'm extremely pessimistic on that front. Um, but I guess the, the story I would tell is that in this country, about 15 or 20% of the country uh, is very, is blessed enough to be pretty well-educated. Uh, and people like me and probably people like you, we, we go to nice schools, we marry other people who went to nice schools, we raise our kids and invest huge amounts of money in them so they'll be able to go to nice schools. They marry another people like themselves. They move to a few cities that have a lot of money like New York and DC and San Francisco and Seattle and Denver and Miami. Uh, and this group of people, 15% of highly educated people, um, control the universities, they control the media, uh, control a lot of politics these days, control a lot of corporate boardrooms these days. And so not only in America, but all across the West, there's a group of people who say, this is wrong. Like th that group of people should not have that much power. Uh, and we're, we're just going to find somebody who can stick his, the thumb in, his thumb in the eye of those educated elites. And so to them, it's not really about Donald Trump. Those, it's mostly because they feel dis oppressed Displaced, by, right. by the educated elites. And Donald Trump hates the educated elites and the educated elites hate Donald Trump. So they figure, well, Trump's our guy. Yeah, it is about the elites and it is. And uh, and there's a big race quotient in there also. As For we sure. Had to, I agree. Where whites being a minority in this country, I, I think that is, I don't think that shows up in the polls. I think it's as simple as, wait a second, I, this I'm, this is not my country anymore. And I, I somebody's going to help me keep it the way it was. And Yeah, in the most that's definitely in the sense. mix. I agree with you. Let's go back a little bit about your biography. Uh, I, you know, I didn't realize you replaced William Sapphire. You were the you were the conservative columnist. I mean, you're kind of a, a well-established moderate at this point. And you also said your first six months of the Times was the worst six months in your life. Yeah, it was. Well, at least professionally. Um, yeah, I was hired as a conservative columnist, and Sapphire was sort of easing himself out. He was beginning his ret retire. And my joke that I used to tell was that being hired as a conservative columnist at the New York Times is like being the chief rabbi in Mecca. There was a lot of loneliness there, not a lot of people there. Um, and so, but 
you know, so I was pretty conservative. I had gone to National Review, worked at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, worked at the Weekly Standard. Uh, and my, my conservatism was old-fashioned Edmund Burke style, Alexander Hamilton. And so that was, yeah. you know, change should come. The world is really complicated. So we Which doesn't, it doesn't exist in the Republican Party. Yeah, so, anymore, I'm, right? that, yeah, so I've got a, I'm a person without a party, really. Um, and, but I went back and read all the original conservative books I used that made me a conservative. I'd grown up a super lefty. Um, and I still love them. Edmund Burke's Reflection on the Revolution in France, the guy named James Q. Wilson. There were all these writers and thinkers from the 50s to the 80s. Uh, and it's all still true to me. But the Republican Party has become anti-conservative. And so I now consider myself, there's a phrase from another hero of mine named Isaiah Berlin, that he is content to be on the rightward edge of the leftward tendency. So I'm, I'm on the rightward edge of the leftward side of American politics. And I guess I'm happy to be there, though I wish I had a party. I may be pro, more pro-Biden than you are. <laughs> I actually, I actually came out the other day, which I mean, I what I said for the first, I said, look, I've been critical of him, because mostly because of his messaging. Now, I mean, he's done. If you look at the scoreboard, he's done a really good job. You know, more legislative victories. Uh, the job he's done with NATO is, is spectacular. Is Ukraine? You got to give him huge points so far for how he's handling Israel, and you know, the economy. Every meter metric is up. It's just his messaging. Unfortunately, he just comes across old. But I said the other day, you know, here is where his age is working for him. You know, you have a guy with so many years on the world stage and you start to imagine what it would be like if the other guy was in charge and you start to go, thank God for Joe Biden. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that he's been involved in the peace process for this whole time, you know, he knows the players, he knows who's tried, he knows Israel has genuinely tried to create a two-state solution only to get their hands slapped away. Um, and so he understands the complexities of the situation. Um, I, I worry, you know, I believe in a two-state solution too, and that's been my whole frame. But I wonder, you know, my embrace of a two-state solution, I think like Joe Biden's on a larger scale, is based on the idea that the two countries or the two societies really do recognize the legitimacy of the other. And I think right. that was true in up until about 2000, but I'm not sure it's true anymore on either side, to be honest. That, I, I think that's what some of these radical lefties don't understand, that if one side is being governed by, and, and let's remember, over 50% of uh, Palestinians voted for Hamas. Uh, I don't know if we can call it a free election, but that if you go, if one of the other's charter is complete annihilation and they don't want to live in peace, what's the peace process? And yeah. therein lies the Rubik's Cube. Yeah, for sure. And, and so I'm hopeful if there's any good to come out of this, and I don't know if this will happen, but it's it should happen, which is the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, as well as the Arab countries that have made peace with Israel, like Egypt and Morocco and Jordan. They need to figure out what comes next after Hamas. I'm assuming Hamas, uh, Israel will do significant damage. But the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank, is not yet up to speed. It would not be able to govern the Gaza as well. But so there has to be a, a better form of Palestinian governance in Gaza. And Israel can't do that because anybody they touch would be tainted, but the Arab countries can do that. And so to me, the, a lot of the future of the Middle East will be determined by how effectively uh, the world helps form a Palestinian authority that comes in after Hamas. It was interesting to, not interesting, it was sad to watch the response when that hospital uh, got uh, there was an explosion there, and the New York Times, your paper immediately, you know, it was Israel, and 
Why does Israel always seem to be on the defensive when it comes to defending themselves more than any other group, more than any other country that instead of it took, and I called out Hollywood, I called out everybody for not coming out immediately and condemning us. Why is it there is this sidestep, this soft shoe when it comes to Israel defending themselves where there was no context for 9-11 in the United States? Nobody was saying, well, the United States maybe did this and we got to remember these people. Why, what is it? You've been to Israel, you go there almost every year. Uh, you have deep ties there. Try and explain that to me. Well, let's start with just ancient anti-Semitism. That's uh, part of it, especially in Europe and around the world. Uh, so there's always going to be a, a bias of hostility. Uh, second, uh, you know, the the people that we spoke about, the woke critical race theory, people have done their work. They've been teaching the universities for decades, and they have persuaded a lot of people that Israel is an apartheid state. And, you know, I would say, how could an apartheid say 20% of the state is, is Arab? People who sit in the Supreme Court are Arab. Uh, apartheid states don't withdraw from territory to try to give it back to the, uh, the, the other side. It's just not, it's not, it's a state with serious sins, but it's not an apartheid state. It's just a misnomer. And then finally, um, Israel has done stuff that I think is just remarkably short-sighted, stupid, bullying, and cruel. And so the settlement activity just invites uh, people to say, well, what the heck kind of country is this if you're displacing Arab villages and things like that? Uh, and so I, you know, I look at the situation, I look at the Palestinians with often horror, often frustration at the sense of um, that they're always playing the victim and making themselves the victim when they don't need to, but also with a great deal of compassion and filial a feeling. I mean, the, these two peoples are crammed in with each other in a very small space they're not dissimilar in a lot of ways. And I've certainly have been in rooms with Israelis and Palestinians who have been in business together, whatever. And you can see, not in times like this, but in normal times, a lot of warmth. And Israel has, has abused its power and not taken advantage of some of the warmth and some of the economic integration that could happen, does happen, and should happen. Let's put your book to work right now, okay? Let's, let's give some helpful tips. I'm sitting at a table, and somebody says to me, well, Israel's a colonizer, you know, and they, and they had to see this coming. And I mean, I'm not saying I believe in terrorism, but, you know, I, it's hard to empathize with Israel in this moment. They are a colonizer. So let, take me, let's do current events and do the book. Yeah. Bring me in the book, some of the tips in the book to help with that. Yeah. So for, as I say, first thing is show some respect uh, and show you're curious. Uh, secondly, be aware that in any conversation, there are two levels of the conversation. There's what we're nominally talking about which is the surface conversation. And then the real conversation, which is the flow of emotions between us uh, as we're talking. With every comment, we're either making each other feel more or less safe. And so the, I think the way to proceed is one, uh, there's a phrase, the gem statement. If we disagree about something in the state of Israel, there's probably something deep down we both agree on. We may disagree who's at blame for what happened in the last month, but we probably both want peace for both peoples in the Middle East. So that's the gem statement. If we keep returning to that gem statement, then, um, then we'll save our relationship amidst a disagreement. Second thing we can do is we can, what Israelis have a phrase, find the disagreement under the disagreement. That if we disagree about the Middle East and Hamas's role, why? What's the foundational philosophical issue underneath the disagreement, our disagreement? What story do you tell? What story do I tell? And if we can talk about that, we're no longer just fighting. 
we're uh, we're exploring why we think what we do, and we're getting to know each other better, and that builds some rapport. And then practically, I find, especially in the Middle East, where I've been having these sorts of conversations for years and years, uh, it it's best not to argue about the past. It's always best to talk about the future, and say so. In, they might say Israel is a colonizer, apartheid state. And so you're but, quite, you, but then the, you go back to, but we tried to give it to you in 2005. Right, like, I, you have to use the past, though. You know. Yeah, sometimes, but I found that you don't really persuade people uh, either because often no, they, no. they just don't know. And maybe I think it is helpful, and I've tried to yeah. use my columns to do little history lessons. But you can reframe the conversation by saying, well, what should we do now? And I find yeah. the problem with the apartheid, they have nothing – they often have no answer what we should do now, no practical solution for how to move forward. Should Israel just like somehow cease to exist uh, and it wouldn't be a colonizer state anymore? Is that really practical? Have you been to Israel? It's like a rich country of 9 million people. Um, and so I do think once you can get people to start talking practically, then you have to face reality and not some ideology. You also talk about when you get people talking about their lives, ask them to tell you a little bit about their life story, just the, the walls come down. Yeah, and that's always the case. I, I quote in the book a guy named Dan McAdams who studies how people tell their life stories, and he pulls people into his office, and he asks them over a series of hours a bunch of questions. Tell me about the high point of your life, the low point of your life, the turning point of your life. Uh, and after a few hours, he pays, he gives them a check for to compensate them for their time as research subjects. And a bunch of people slide the check back and say, I'm not taking money for this. This has been one of the best afternoons of my life. And that's been my experience as a journalist. Nobody ever says, if you ask them their life story, nobody ever says none of your damn business. They love- Or it's not interesting. It's not, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, people yeah, love yeah. Talk, giving you their life story. Uh, and if you can get them talking about- How, Where do people usually start? When they give their life story, do they start with, well, here's the beginning, or do they usually start with the most kind of important defining characteristic? Yeah, for they them? start too late. They they start like with the beginning yeah. of their career. And so I have a friend who hires yeah. people for a living, and his his method is take me back. Take me back to childhood. And I'm I'm not shy about asking people about the town they grew up in, the like the nature of their family. Like you can say in, in every family- you can ask two questions. In my family, the one thing you must always do is blank. In my family, the one thing you must never do is blank. And you can learn a lot about people's lives from how they fill in those blanks. And my friend who, who hires people for a living, uh, he says, take me back to high school. Who were you in high school and how has that changed? His theory yeah, is that uh, everyone's still carrying around some of the insecurities they had in high school. And if you, if you can yeah. understand that, you'll understand a lot about them. David, I appreciate your time. The book, which is so right for the times now, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. As I said, I've been a fan for years, and I really appreciate you taking the time, my friend. No, thank you, Donnie. I'm, I'm honored to be with you, and, and I thank you for taking the time and interest. Go out and buy the book, everybody. This one's, this one's a home run.